Let's talk about your toothbrush. I know. I'm never ever going to preach ever again. It's fine. But let's talk about your toothbrush. Let's talk about your toothbrush. Now, toothbrushes generally don't last that long. Before we know it, our toothbrushes are all bent out of shape, different colors than we took them out of the package, so on and so forth. Now, as far as I can uh, calculate, there's really like two different types of people in the world. When the toothbrush gets too old, there's one group of people that cling to it all the tighter. I will not spend the $1.98 to go get another toothbrush. These are the same people that whenever the dentist gives them the toothbrush, they're like, oh, good, a free one. This will be, I just traded in my old one. Now I don't have any financing on this one, and now I'm good to go for the next six, seven years, whatever it is. But then there's, then there's the other side. The other side is the moment that toothbrush is taken out of the package, they're already dreaming of the next one. They're like, how, I know this is like this year's model, but I cannot wait for the upgrade. Like, how can I be able to purchase, how can I get my hands on one that will do even better than this one I just secured? I mean, today you can think back to your little cup next to your sink, and you can figure out which side of the line you're on. Why are we even talking about this? <laughs> All right. Um, it's interesting to think, as many toothbrush ads have you seen in your entire life, not one of them has ever said, it is finished. Not one of them has ever said, this is the toothbrush to end all other toothbrushes. This is the toothbrush that will solve all your dental needs. It's just not true. Because they, can't, they, just, they simply just cannot claim such a thing. Now we laugh, and I am nowhere near about to compare Jesus to a toothbrush. But I will happily compare our hearts to how we respond to the greater king, the Lord of the Sabbath, who said it is finished on the cross, how we are so quick to hold on to things that are old, things that no longer work because of Christ's work, but then also look toward something that we believe might be better. Today, Jesus is going to challenge us with his authority and how he is the greater high priest, he is the greater David, he is the greater everything. And because he is the greater everything, we do not throw him out. We do not move on to something better. And that shows up in our lives, in our relationships with others. So look at me here, Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. And that time, Jesus passed through the green fields on the Sabbath. So, Matthew here is setting the scene for us. Here's Jesus, and we'll soon find out that his disciples are with him. And it's the Sabbath, so that is the Saturday. And now Jesus is walking along, probably going from wherever chapter 11 happened onto the next spot. And we see here, as Jesus is leading his disciples through the fields, something interesting very happens. His disciples were hungry, okay? Their, their stomachs were empty. And so they began to pick and eat some heads of grain. So this is actually common practice. This is actually something that was permissible in the law for Hebrews to do. In fact, the law required those who had field and those who grew grain to not harvest the entire field, to leave some back so that the widow and the poor and those who were traveling had uh, enough to be able to go and pick their own and to be satisfied. Well, 
we run into the conflict here next. As Jesus' disciples were filling their stomachs with these heads of grain on the Sabbath, something surprising but not surprising happens. Verse 2, when the, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, see, mm, caught you, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, this is a surprise in that there's no reference to the Pharisees until this moment. So it's almost like they're slithering in the grass, right? Like a snake. And then all of a sudden, the disciples take the first head of grain and they pop out. They're like, surprise, we caught you. You know, you guys have failed. You failed to keep the Sabbath law. But it's not surprising in that we have seen this over and over again. Matthew here, over and over again, paints this picture of who Jesus is compared to who the Pharisees want him to be, who the Pharisees expected him to be, but then also the Pharisees' challenge to who Jesus is slowly revealing himself to be. It really is a conflict of expectation. And so the Pharisees here, as they either sneakily, or maybe there's a big crowd here that's following Jesus, we're not totally sure, but they finally think that they've been able to challenge the teacher. They've been able to challenge the rabbi, in a sense. So what's going on here, though, on a deeper level, is the Pharisees, who have come up with their own law in order to fulfill God's law on their own, have now seen the disciples break that law, break the things that they have set up. You guys should know that the, although the prohibition is working on the Sabbath, the Pharisees have gone and added 39 other rules by this time to what that looks like. And two of those things were reaping and threshing. And as the disciples were to pick the head of grain, what they would do is they would pick it, you rub it in your hands like this. This is what my study Bible tells me they did. I didn't see it in person. And then they take the grain that's left over after the husk is all done away with, and they eat it. It's actually very laborious for not much uh, satisfaction. But the Pharisees, in observing what the disciples have done, have now come to the Lord and said, hey, your Pharisees are breaking the reaping and threshing. But notice what the Pharisees say to Jesus. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful. This is actually the Pharisees claiming that the disciples have not done what is right, what is permissible. So here the Pharisees are challenging Jesus' authority. And maybe under the skin here, the Pharisees are going to, they're going to go up to Jesus and they're going to say, listen, your disciples are not doing what we have said is right to do on the Sabbath. Shouldn't you tell them to change? Shouldn't you be the good teacher, the good rabbi, the good person, and tell your disciples to change to meet my requirements? This is really a challenge to Jesus' authority. It is a challenge by condemning his disciples' behavior. They are coming at Jesus through what the disciples are doing. And really, this does set up the rest of chapter 12. So as we go through not just this passage, but the passages in the near future, chapter 12 really is a conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. And it all lines up under this, this umbrella of his authority. And so it's going to challenge us as well. How do we challenge God's authority? We probably never ever say that out loud, and yet the risk and the threat is always there. But the challenge to Christ's authority comes from a doubt in his authority. We doubt his work. 
We doubt his character. We doubt his promises. In each one of these ways, every time we doubt who Jesus is, we end up challenging him for authority. The Pharisees doubted who Jesus was, and so they thought they had the permission to go before him and challenge him on his authority. Here today, we're going to be confronted with that, and moving through chapter 12, we're going to be confronted with that all the more. So how do we challenge Christ's authority? Jesus responds to the Pharisees in a pretty unique way. Look at 3 with me, verse 3. Now he said to them, Have you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he ate and entered the house of God, and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Jesus responds with this story about David. And you can find the story in 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 9. And this is David running away from Saul. Saul has vowed to annihilate David off the face of the earth. And he's already attempted to do it, and so David has fled. But as he flees, and he's going through the countryside, him and the men who have fleed with him are hungry, just like Jesus' disciples. And so they get to uh, the temple of Nob, where the, uh, the temple was in Shiloh, it was destroyed, so now they have this temporary one set up, and Ahimelech is there as the priest. And what David, or what Jesus is talking about here in this story, is that David goes to the priest and says, I need, my, I need something to solve my hunger. Me and my men were dying of hunger, and we need something. And the priest says, Ahimelech says, I don't have anything for you. I don't have any provisions. And then David says, well, what about the bread of the presence? Now, what is the bread of the presence? That's a great question. It is a fantastic question. In the, uh, in the ceremonial law, there is this uh, mandate for the priests on the Sabbath to bake 12 loaves of bread. And then those, bread, those pieces of bread are brought into the holy place and put on a gold table. Yes. So what this means is for the priest and for the people that every day that bread, every Sabbath, that bread showed up on the table was one more day that the Israelites knew that God was providing for them and that their priest was ministering on their behalf. Now, it's very holy bread right? Very holy bread. And so that meant that the only people who could eat it were the priests themselves. And so David shows up and he says, well, what about the bread of presence? Can't I eat that? And what do the priests say? The priest says, no, of course not. That's only reserved for me. It's only reserved for the Lord. It's in the holy place. I can't go retrieve it. Actually, no. Ahimelech goes and he gets the bread and he gives it to David and the men. But he follows up this story with another story. And he says, okay, well, if you haven't heard of that, teachers of the law, wink, wink, well, then how about this one? Verse 5, or haven't you read in the law, again, haha, that on the Sabbath day, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? He said, you want to know one more layer to the story? You want to see just how the Lord operates with the law? Well, take a look at this. Those priests had to make that bread on the Sabbath. And guess what? Guess what they're not allowed to do on the Sabbath? Bake bread. Jesus is challenging what the Pharisees believe to be right and true about him and about the law. God here is showing through Jesus that he prioritizes concern for others other than condemnation. 
that God prioritizes concern for others over condemnation. Jesus brings up this story about David and Ahimelech and the showbread because he wants to show to the Pharisees that a priest's concern for another person's well-being is actually provided by the law. And the law in that moment isn't meant to condemn David for lack of wisdom, how dare you not bring your own bread, or for David's uh, lack of respect for the Lord to even ask for the bread of presence. No, the law actually provided space for the priest to have a concern for others. But then, it's so amazing, Jesus then says, well, if that's the priest, well, what about God himself? If the priests are commanded not to break the law, and yet in worship to the Lord they must break the law, where is their condemnation? Does the Lord come down from heaven and condemn them for breaking his law? No. In fact, the Lord provides a way for those priests to continue their worship. God here is seen prioritizing a concern for others, both David and his men, but then also the priests who worship him over using the law as a tool of condemnation. Now, this all comes to a head in verse 6. What we're about to read in verse 6 is absolutely earth-shattering. This would have been jaw-dropping truth bomb on the Pharisees, and they would have absolutely been uh, terribly angry over what Jesus said. And yet for us, this is one of the best things that Jesus has ever said. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, go back to the toothbrushes. We always want the better toothbrush, of course, right. But again, that is not the work that we need. We need somebody who is greater than the temple to come and meet our needs. Jesus is the high priest who fulfills the temple. Here, Jesus is sharing with the Pharisees the truth about what is going on before their eyes. Yes, his disciples ate the grain. Yes, it is the Sabbath, but Jesus, as the greater high priest, comes out of a concern for others. If we want to remind ourselves what the high priest did, he was the priest that ministered before God on behalf of the people. That God had made that role so that somebody would be able to go before the people and before God and be able to work out what the Lord needed to be done between the people and himself. But Jesus actually doesn't say that he's the great high priest here. He actually says something greater than the temple. And here he's combining the idea of the role of the priest with what was actually happening at the temple. The temple was the place where the Lord set up facilitation of atonement and worship. Where did all of Israel life swirl around? What was the central point of Israel's life? Well, Geographically, it was the temple. And as the Israelites lived their lives, it was the temple. But it was the Lord's presence at the temple that the Israelites were to be surrounded or surrounding. So here, as Jesus makes this claim that something greater than the temple has come, he is telling us that God had such a concern for those who were lost in their sin that he would send the great high priest to make atonement, to make a way for lost sinners to be redeemed to himself. God's concern for us leads him to send Jesus, not to condemn us, but to serve us in his sacrifice. 
I think to John 3.16, but then 17 follows right after. I did not come to the world to condemn, but to save. Jesus' own words on his own mission coming to us. Here, Jesus is making this claim that something greater than the temple is here, and of course he's referring to himself, but he's also, again, helping the Pharisees understand what is happening before their eyes. Look at verse 7. If you had known, again, that's the third time, right? He's talking to the teachers of the law. If you had been perceptive to see, this should have made sense for you. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have conde- or you would not have condemned the innocent. In verse 7 here, Jesus pulls back into the prophets. He's already laid out right, the law for the Pharisees, and now he's going back to the prophets. He's saying, listen, this is the heart of the Lord, that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Christ here reveals who he is as Lord, but he also reveals himself as Lord in front of these Pharisees and the disciples. Christ is driven by mercy and not by condemnation. He's driven by mercy and not condemnation. And so for the Pharisees here, he's trying to point out to them that if you were actually truly observing the law as God had set it up, you should have been able to tell that this is what the Lord's heart is. Merciful. Merciful towards sinners. And that his concern for the well-being of others, not just physically, but spiritually, has now led for him to send the greater temple, the greater high priest, the greater king. It leads us to our big idea this morning that Christ's authority prioritizes mercy. Christ's authority prioritizes mercy. David here again is building up this claim not just to tell the Pharisees that something greater than the temple is here, and he's not just outlining, connecting the dots from deep in the Old Testament to near into the Old Testament and now into the New Testament to say that this is the Lord's heart, but he's aiming all of this at himself. He is taking the brunt of it all. He's saying to the Pharisees, if we are looking for mercy and we are in need of mercy, then the buck stops with me. I am the greater temple. And so he leads him to verse 8. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Son of Man, we've encountered numerous times so far. This is Jesus' personal reference to himself as the Messiah, the one who was promised to be brought to sinners for their salvation. This Messiah is Jesus. So he is the Son of Man. But Lord of the Sabbath is different. It's a unique situation where Jesus is pulling together all these threads and saying, these things all combine in who I am. So if Christ's authority prioritizes mercy, well, how should we ever know that he is the authority? Well, it's with authority that Jesus becomes Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus here is mixing, he's intersecting all these ideas for our benefit. Christ is king over the Sabbath. And he is the one who rules over it. He is the one who has created it, as we see back in Genesis. He is the one who institutes it, as we see in Exodus. He is the one who has created it. He is the one that's instituted it. He is the one who is Lord over the Sabbath. But then at the same time, he's saying, but out of mercy, I come to fulfill the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day of the week where Israel would understand that they really, truly are dependent on the Lord. 
to give up work, to give up the things that they would do throughout the week, to devote an entire day to the Lord's provision of their needs. It's not just the greater temple, not just the greater high priest, he is the greater provision himself. That out of concern for you and for me, he would come to earth to meet our greatest need, restoration to the Lord. Christ's authority prioritizes mercy, and we see that in his kingship over the Sabbath and the fulfillment of the Sabbath. As we were going over last week, at the end of chapter 11, we were seeing how Jesus' promise of rest works itself out. And no, no doubt, as we were thinking about how the Lord is the one who gives us rest from law-keeping works, earning our own salvation, maintaining our own salvation, and he's also the one who gives us rest from the guilt of law-breaking. When we do mess up, who should ever be able to take that guilt away? Right? We see here that Jesus is making the claim that not only is that my promise, but I am the king who can make that promise, and I will be the king to make good on that promise. Jesus' concern for us shows up in mercy. It shows up in how he goes about fulfilling the gospel on our behalf. But it also leads to one other thing. Christ is king over the Sabbath, and Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, but we as believers live our Sabbath unto the Lord. We live our rest, our gospel freedom unto the Lord. The gift that he has given us, this rest from law-keeping and this rest from guilt, from law-breaking, we now live in that freedom to the Lord. We ask ourselves, what does it look like for me to be free from this law-keeping, free from maintaining my relationship with the Lord, and free from the guilt of my sin? How does that help me follow the Lord? We live the Sabbath unto the king of the Sabbath. How does Christ's authority help us to prioritize worship to the Lord? Well, we live under Christ's authority. I think this shows up in a few ways for us. The first would be this, that we are indeed freed from earning or maintaining his favor. That there is nothing that grows old about the high priest's promise and the high priest's self-sacrifice on our behalf. That his work as the high priest is now going on even now for all eternity. That the Lord should be the one who has earned and maintained his favor for his people. Today I wonder, in, in correlation to last week and this week and even next week as we look at the next part of this story... I just wonder how many of us are bogged down by either trying to keep the law, keep God's obedience, so that we might continue to be saved. How many of us are striving and looking toward a better myself in order to be finally saved by the Lord? The greater temple, the greater king, the greater high priest, the greater sacrifice, the greater provision says that we are freed from those things. We're freed from earning or maintaining his favor and salvation. But then we're also charmed towards repentance. Here, Jesus, I I just have to be so uh, frank with the word here. Jesus is, yes, challenging the Pharisees, but he's also pointing one more time to his mercy towards those who think they have to keep the law. 
Jesus is, yes, challenging them, but he's also coaxing them, charming them toward understanding who he is, how the Bible points to who he is, so that they would choose to repent of their sin and believe in him. We're charmed to his repentance by his mercy. What authority would we ever go to and tell them, announce to them the truth of our law-breaking? As we're driving down the road, obviously speeding, right? And we don't see a cop on the side of the road slow down so that we pull over and just say, hey, just so you know, like two miles back, I was cruising. And it was really bad. And if you were two miles back, you would have totally pulled me over. So just give me a ticket now, officer. We just don't do that. But the Lord is a perfect authority. And his authority shows up in mercy. And so his authority on our behalf coaxes us, charms us to live a life of repentance. When we ever turn to the Lord is because when we know that he is our great high priest, full of mercy on our behalf. Now, Hosea 6.6, we already mentioned here as Jesus quotes it, but this is also a call to those who have not trusted in the Lord. Hosea 6.6 6 is embedded in the middle of Hosea where Hosea is asked over and over and over again that an adulterous Israel would finally turn back to him. And he says, after that call to repentance, he says, I am the one who desires mercy and not sacrifice. What he's saying there is, I am the one who desires my mercy to be poured out for sinners. And I don't want sinners to try to earn it through religious action. It's just impossible. So as God calls a sinful, unfaithful Israel to faith in him by his mercy, today the Lord calls you to faith in him by his mercy. And if today you know that you have never repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord for his provision of your greatest need, I ask you to consider his mercy I ask you to consider his authority that can provide that mercy for you. I ask you to consider how you make a way under your own self-effort to either relieve that guilt or think you're keeping up with God's standard. I ask you to turn from that law-keeping, turn from that guilt that may keep you in sin, and turn to the Lord who loves you and sent his Son to die for you. There's a third way here. We're freed from earning or maintaining his favor. We are charmed towards repentance by his mercy, but then we are deemed innocent in Christ's authority alone. Here, the disciples are bystanders, of course, right? And so here, they're just observing this awkward situation where the, where the Pharisees are condemning them to Jesus. But then Jesus replies, if you know my heart, you would not condemn the innocent. And today, we deal a lot with this. In our relationships at work, in the family, even our own self-condemnation, we seek authorities that would condemn us. We listen to authorities that we think have a weight or a power to condemn us. But that is just not the case. We are deemed innocent in Christ's authority alone. And thankfully, by the power of the gospel, thankfully, by Christ's authority, no one can outdeem, no one can outdo what Christ has done for you. So today, if you are struggling with perception of, or others' perception of you, if you are struggling in your faithfulness to the Lord, continually considering what would other people think, what would other people do if they knew this is what I did, or this is what I wanted to do, or this is what I, how I spend my Sunday mornings, whatever it might be, if you are forecasting out the condemnation of others, 
then turn to the Lord. Understand that he is the one who has made you innocent. But also, today, if you are struggling with relationships or people that are condemning you for the way that you faithfully follow the Lord, then I suggest you turn to the Lord there as well. And understand that it is his death that secures your innocence. And therefore, you have an assurance that he is with you and will not forsake you. We are deemed innocent in Christ's authority alone. This provides assurance for us in each one of these. In our freedom, in being charmed back to repentance, in his innocence for us, it provides assurance. So the big question for us today is, does our assurance in Christ lead us to worship? Does this provision of assurance, this security in Christ's work on our behalf, does it lead us to worship God as the Lord of the Sabbath? The one who is Lord over our rest. He is the one who has provided our rest. Now leads us to living a Christ-centered life for God's glory. Does your assurance lead to worship? There's another consideration for us here as well. We just don't live under Christ's authority as believers, but we also live out Christ's mercy. So this doesn't just meet, the, meet us in our relationship with the Lord, but it also meets us in our relationship with others. We live out Christ's mercy. Simply put, those who have received mercy from God show that mercy to others. We who have received mercy extend mercy towards others. This is the way that Christians live. The Pharisees here in this example used their authority to condemn others. What should the Christian do? The Christian should be living under Christ's authority from the mercy towards others. Believers are merciful toward others. I have a long list here. This is not exhaustive in any way, shape, or form. And if you are attending care group later today or whenever, uh, I suggest that you guys come up with other ways that you can look at ways to be merciful. But here is a few ways that I have thought of that a believer extends this mercy. We ask for forgiveness. We move towards those who deserve condemnation with mercy. We deal patiently. Mothers and fathers, we deal patiently with our children in mercy. We use gentle words. We look at others who maybe in our hearts we don't believe deserve gentle words, yet knowing what Christ has done for us, we use gentle words. We trust rather than doubt. We move forward towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, trusting that they are acting appropriately, acting in faithfulness to the Lord. We're quicker to trust than we are to doubt. We humbly serve. Now, we had the men's retreat this weekend up at ABC, and I'm literally just going to steal what General Reno said. I think I have the authority to do that, speaking of authority. Um, but he made a very clear distinction between what serving others and then looking to serve is. I thought it was just so instructful. To be a servant is, when somebody asks you to do something, you say, yeah, sure, I will go ahead and I will serve you that way. Thanks for bringing it up. Really appreciate it. But serving others is proactive. It's looking for ways to extend that mercy. It's looking for ways to serve others. So we serve 
others were proactive in that. Then we also grieve together. We grieve together. We extend mercy emotionally, relationally with others. We also rejoice together. We share in each other's burdens as life continues on. And as we deal with others, we honor their consciences as well. To understand that their convictions might be a little different, and so as I humbly serve that brother or sister, I choose to do so mercifully. We invest in younger generations. We don't look at them as just cell blobs. We look at our children, the younger generations, here at this church, in our families, Thanksgiving, whatever it might be, and see an opportunity to extend the mercy of Christ to them. We make it a point to give rather than receive, to sacrifice rather than to take. We share our faith with others, whether they already believe or don't. We share our faith, the truth of the gospel, with others. We give encouragement. We build others up toward Christ. In all these things, we show mercy as Christ has shown mercy for us. The same way that the Pharisees condemn the disciples, we are prone to condemn others, and that is an exercise of our own authority. At that moment, we just choose, Lord, I know what you've said, but yet I choose to condemn this person according to my standards. It should not be found in the Christian. We decide to exercise mercy. Doubt in Christ's authority leads to this condemnation of others. So are we quick? Are we quick to condemn others? Christ's authority prioritizes mercy, and so should the Christian. We look for those opportunities to serve. We look for those opportunities to exercise humility, of course. We look for each one of those, how we can show people the mercy of Christ that he showed us as our great high priest, the greater temple, the Lord of the Sabbath, the provision for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time that we are able to gather around your word, to look who you are, to be challenged on how we can accept your authority, your good authority in our lives. Lord, we just praise your name that your authority is not misused, yet Lord, it provides what we need. It provides rest and the comfort of your gospel. Pray, Lord, that you would fill us with this assurance. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would help us to look to you for all of our needs. And Lord, that would be extended to others. I pray, Lord, that you would do this work in our hearts by the power of your spirit for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.